0: of the Addiction Connections COVID series. That's a long story.
1: Long story. And only a short disease of 121 days, Dr. Divine.
0: Yes. And so today what we're going to be doing is summarizing what went on at today's Echo, which is brought to you by our friends at the Home Security and Emergency Management in Minneapolis-St. Paul.
1: Homeland Security. It sounds way cooler than home security.
0: Homeland. Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of partners that have been involved in in that echo, including our funding from Stratus and St. Gabriel's Hospital and all the different people that have uh, helped us uh, find speakers. And we've had speakers now coming up from Hennepin Healthcare. We've had Alina uh, today. We've had uh, Essentia, um, Dr. Nasca from Duluth. So uh, today we had our friend, Seth Baker.
1: Seth Baker.
0: Tell us a little bit about Seth Baker.
1: I would love to tell you about Seth Baker and then you can kind of set the tone today with a little bit of tidbit follow-up from what Dr. Noska said last week about the animal that breeded maybe is breeded a word COVID. No, no. Okay. So Seth Baker is a critical care pulmonologist at Alina kind of works mostly at Mercy hospital, but some outlying hospitals as well. He comes to Minnesota via Illinois and Rush university. Um, yeah, and he gave yeah. a great
0: talk, and we're going to summarize that in just a moment. I think that, you know, part of this whole disease has just been confusion, I think, for all of us. And I think if you look at the animals involved uh, from the beginning, uh, where this whole thing came from, I think that's still shrouded in, in mystery, if you will. Ooh, uh, fancy. In, yeah, interestingly, early on, there was some thought that the pangolin, I think it's pangolin, was involved. And I, I actually asked my grandson, Jude, you, uh, do you know what a pangolin is? And... Apparently, the Wildcrats talk about this quite a bit, and he uh, he told me that the pangolin is the only mammal that actually has scales. And I said, "What do you mean scales?" He said, "You know, keratin like your fingernails."
1: Yeah. So his like seven-year-old grandson is smarter than yeah. he is, is. And then what it, the moral of this is
0: yeah. And then the bat was a suspect, and Dr. Noscalat last week actually proposed that potentially the pig was partly involved in this. But I think we've all seen the news, and we've seen that the tiger is also getting coronavirus. And to be clear, one of the issues I've had with that is I I didn't realize they were on the list of things to be screened. We're going to get back to everybody on whether or not Minnesota Department of Health will pay for the screening of your local tiger. I think that's up in the air.
1: I'm just concerned about how we, one, know that the tiger has a fever and or a cough, and then how we actually screen the tiger, but I guess... I'd like to, to be see, continued.
0: Yeah, I'd like to see that guy get a rectal temperature on a tiger. <laughs> so, but anyway,
1: <laughs> anyway, so back to to Dr. Baker, Seth here. I think he's my new Facebook friend, so I'm gonna call him Seth for the time being. Um, so basically, he just talked about the ventilation and everything we forgot from residency. Um, thank goodness, everything we forgot from residency. Big reasons why we use mechanical ventilation. Obviously, it improves gas exchange. Improves the VQ mismatching. Um, really, it helps decrease the work of breathing. Rest the muscles if you're working too hard to breathe. And then if there's different lung, mechanic things ish, lung mechanics, so things that are wrong with the lungs, they're not as pliable, they're not as compliant. Um, you're having a lot of other difficulties with fevers or sepsis. They can help kind of overcome those things for you.
0: Now, one of the things he talked about was really what can you set on a scent. What can you set on a ventilator? And uh, to be clear, I've been around a while, and uh, the last person I had on a ventilator was, I believe, 1993.
1: Are you and, sure it wasn't, you know, 1963 in the Iron Lung?
0: It was long enough ago that there was no such thing as Centricare in Saint Cloud. It was still <laughs> Saint Cloud Hospital, and which is where I transferred him. But uh, there are a number of things that you are able to set on a ventilator: the FIO2. Uh, the PEEP, uh, obviously tidal volume, how much uh, air are you putting in into the lungs, uh, the respiratory rate, which, of course, we'll talk about shortly and how sometimes that will affect their pH and their uh, PCO2, inspiratory time and flow rates. And again, you know, many of these things uh, can be changed as you look at somebody's blood gases so that you're able to manage them appropriately.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing we don't always think about with the ventilators, at least I don't always think about them, is the patient can still sometimes override the ventilator. And so really looking at a vent, I think Dr. Baker did a good job of trying to explain to us today that look at what the patient is doing as well. You can't just look at the numbers. We actually have to treat patients in medicine, not just lab results, which is kind of phenomenal. But different things that if the patient is... um, having issues with their oxygenation, different things on the vent, you can adjust um, the FiO2, the PEEP, lesser agree, uh, the tidal volume will help with that. But the things that you really look at on that that ABG, that airway, the arterial blood gases, the PO2 and the, the oxygen saturation. So you're going to want to look at these these variables um, rather than the pH and the PCO2. Kurt, do you want to tell us what things you can adjust in the ventilator to adjust those?
0: Well, Yes. Thank you so much, Heather. And actually there's a number of variables that affect ventilation. And I think at the top of that list are our tidal volume and really respiratory rate. Um, I think that that's really where you've got to uh, kind of focus your efforts on.
1: And Seth did an amazing job today of going through different ways you ventilate patients for asthma, COPD, sepsis, all the different other types of reasons that you might throw a patient on a ventilator. But of course this being the COVID era, I just coined that COVID era. Um, we're gonna look fo- focus more on the, the the COVID patient population. So really, when you're looking at COVID positive patients, your goal oxygen should be between that ninety two and ninety six percent. And so that's your goal when you're when you're just looking straight up whether you need to to intubate them or not. High flow nasal cannula definitely recommended over the conventional oxygen. Did you say nasal cannula? High flow nasal cannula. Okay. You know, it's the thing in the nose, high flow. Um, and if you can do it humidified and and warmed, it's it's better tolerated by patients. So this is a way to try to, uh, you know, mitigate or avoid having to, to intubate a person. Really, the patients, these patients, the one thing you want to try to not do, you don't want to do CPAP. You don't necessarily want to do BiPAP because these are all aerosolizing things. So this is a patient population. You do look at things differently. Um, unless,
0: he, unless of course, you have nothing else. If
1: you have nothing else, then yes, BiPAP is your next best option. But normally we think about those options rather than uh, putting a tube in a person because that's so much more invasive. But in this pop- population, you're really going to jump to that tube a little bit sooner. Um, obviously, a lot of these studies on these patients are out of China, out of Italy, and they're all retrospective looking because this didn't exist. And so they kind of went with it, and now they've been able to kind of teach us things. Um, they are saying that, that high-flow nasal cannula is not increasing the risk of transmission. So apparently this is not aerosolizing um, in the same way that um, like CPAP or BiPAP would. Um, and patients tolerate it a lot better than the, just the, the mask. Um, and so really trying to, to think about the things that, one, the patient would tolerate better, and two, would help prevent transmission throughout your entire hospital. Um, the non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, so this is the mask or the CPAP, um, did actually not improve mortality or length of stay, had an increased failure rate, um, increased needs for inhaled prostacyclins and all these other medications. Um, and then they did. he did talk a little bit about if you're really trying to not innovate a patient, different positions like proning, and we can come back to that shortly.
0: Well, then Dr. Baker, and I, I think I'm going to stick with Dr. Baker since we're not Facebook friends. Uh, he did talk a little about... Uh, intubating patients and recommended that uh you know when you're doing rapid sequence intubation that some people are using boxes or plexiglass, plexiglass boxes to kind of minimize that aerosolization uh the surrounding environment. Uh and he noted that in their hospital at Alina at this point they were not, but it was something that they were considering. And uh and also uh some of this uh low tidal volume uh uh flow uh really Uh, Often these more compliant lungs, uh, they could start typically around eight cc's uh, per kilogram when they're when they're intubating the patients, and then slowly trying to bring them down, uh, even into that six range per. And and I think that's something that uh, there's been some studies that have shown that they had increased more, excuse me, increased survivability uh, at those lower pressures. One of the things he did note was that uh, if if you, um, man, now I'm blanking out, Heather. That if you
1: Increase the pressure? Are you trying to say that peep for even a short period of time, um, even that brief forty seconds, then you're able to kind of bring it back down, it can help with the compliance? A well, little I'm bit? S-
0: I'm sorry, but at my age, I forgot there for a moment. That's but, okay. But what I was, uh, what I was going to say. Uh, was that at, at 6 uh, cc's per kilogram, a lot of times he noted that the patients would be very uncomfortable with that level and occasionally that they, they would need to be sedated. So uh, in those patients that were trying to do at the lower 6 cc's per kilogram, uh, that a lot of times you've just got to do something to make them more comfortable. Now, he talked a lot about these patients, uh, that prone positioning. And in fact, at their hospital presently, uh, they're basically If they go to the prone position, they're doing it for 20 hours a day and then four days uh, flipped over. Four hours. Did I say days? (laughs) Again, (laughs) that stroke was worse than I thought.
1: (laughs) I just find that super interesting that you just flip a patient over flat on their stomach and make them lay like that for 20 hours. With a tube. With a tube. Yeah. Um, And, you know, he said that to kind of take that pressure off of the lungs, just that even that heart just a little bit, putting that pressure on the lungs just to kind of help with that. It's just... Interesting that they, they got to that point.
0: And one of the other things Dr. Baker talked about is that really the kind of that early use of intubation and uh, and prone, uh, prone position a lot of times has been shown to be beneficial in some patients. So that's something that they're really looking at. Uh, you know, one of the other things they were doing that seemed to be helpful was uh, having short episodes of increased peep up to 40 for just 40 seconds and then intermittently doing that. It seems to be uh, something that's also beneficial. Let's talk about steroids. Let's talk about steroids. And I think
1: this is that kind of also gray area that, you know, does COVID look like ARDS? Does it not? Do you use steroids? Do you not? Do you use bronchodilators? Do you not? You know, it has so many different elements of so many different other pulmonary things, but yet not quite the exact same. And so the steroid controversy, which has been going back and forth throughout all of the literature all the last 121 days, basically they're saying if they have covid with respiratory failure, but they don't have ARDS, should not use steroids. But if they, you know, have the f- respiratory failure with ARDS, you know, it's worth it to try steroids. Um,
0: I'd like to try steroids. Oh, never mind. I don't That's think
1: another. they mean the kind that make you big and bulky. I'd like to prescribe those for you, though. Um, you know, and he did make the comment that. And I think this is something that, unfortunately, we're going to have to think about when it comes to COVID is if you get to that end-of-life situation or you have a patient who's super dire on a ventilator, you know, you know, Dr. Baker kind of mentioned, throw steroids at him. It's not going to hurt anything at that point. Um, it but might be the one patient that helps, um, but it really, the, the, that you know, is the not there. jury is still out on that as far as recommendations. Uh-oh. Um, but of course, if they have something else that would require steroid c l p d they have wheezing, they have a- asthma. um I think that d- definitely it's worth doing because again, patients with covid always have pretty clear sounding lungs, which is just phenomenal that that can happen.
0: So one of the other things that he talked about, he's also an intensive care uh, physician. And and so one of the things that they're really trying to avoid is excessive fluid. And so they're trying not to overload these patients and and typically are avoiding diuretics, uh, especially because of that acute kidney injury. And uh, sometimes this will complicate things. Now, he spent a little time talking about uh, COVID-19 respiratory failure is not, how it is not similar to ARDS. And although these patients are hypoxic, um, they have high compliance of their lungs, and not those usual stiff lungs that are seen often with ARDS. And so, one of the things to look for that is early. And in fact, he mo- he noted that this is sometimes an early finding. And he basically broke this up into two categories. He mentioned how uh, early on you've got this pulmonary compliance uh, increased pulmonary compliance with these with this viral pneumonia. Uh, they get kind of this hypoxic vasoconstriction, and often the the PEEP is not as um, is less helpful, and, and if if you go greater than 15 uh, on the PEEP, often these patients will have barotrauma trauma uh, and increased intrathoracic pressure, uh, which often would lead to cardiac dysfunction. Uh, that second group, uh, he noted, would have increased respiratory efforts, and they and they would often get vent-induced lung injury, uh, especially with the lower lung compliance uh, and these higher plateaus on their um, on their. Uh, ventilators and these patients often look similar to the classic ARDS and so he basically broke them into two different groups of patients who had covid
1: I think the bottom line is covid is not reading any type of textbook mostly because covid doesn't exist in any textbook and it's he said it very nicely is that the ABG is unfortunately going to be all of our friends if we get to the point of needing a vent um, I like the quote he said today that I'm a lung doctor I like the ABG. Kind of gives me goosebumps, but um it's really looking at again what the ABG is showing you and what you can do with a ventilator to help what the patient is doing against the ventilator um to try to just maximize you know what they have as far as their ventilation and their support.
0: And he also noted that often that uh when these patients are on the ventilator that it's that it's okay to tolerate a certain amount of hypercapnia. That often, uh, if they're in a, a range where it's a little bit more elevated, uh, you, that you shouldn't be so concerned about trying to bring that back down so quickly or even right away.
1: Yeah, and that back to just the whole final points of that low tidal volume, which seems very counterintuitive, can actually have mortality benefit with ARDS um, and COVID, especially when it does start to, to to switch over to looking more like a typical ARDS. Um, and then really, again, looking at the ABGs, make sure the ventilatory needs are definitely there, especially if acidosis is occurring.
0: Yeah. He, he talked about some interesting things that can happen sometimes with the ventilator and uh, really made it clear that if the ven- if ventilation wasn't going uh, as you'd planned, that it's always always a reasonable thing to call for help and ask for help on those things. And and in fact, even disconnecting the ventilator is not unreasonable in certain situations uh, to let the patient uh, breathe on his own for a short time.
1: It was really cute how you took a Sharpie and wrote on your hand, call mom, because that's what he did say he would do. And Kurt's going to also call his mom in that situation.
0: I would call my mom.
1: <laughs> just, you know, and with, with these COVID patients, they can change very quickly. And I wish there was this magic, you know, eight ball. We could all say this is what this patient's going to do and this is how they're going to progress. But just keep in mind that they can change very quickly. Um And just to keep looking and to keep asking and to keep, um, you know, getting help from others around you is is definitely the right answer in this situation.
0: One of the things that uh, he also wanted to make clear in all of this kind of final points was again, that whole aerosolizing issue. And especially when you're disconnecting a vent or doing anything, suctioning or uh, pulling apart any of the ventilator uh, parts, that there can be things that are airborne and it's important to be, uh, appropriately protected with that. Uh, we already talked a little bit about the uh, lying prone and and their uh, protocol at this point at 20 hours prone and 4 hours supine uh, to really help support the oxygenation. And and probably the biggest thing that he uh, really pushed is that you want to intubate these patients early. Uh, if they're requiring more than 15 liters uh, via uh, that high-flow nasal cannula, it's time to put them on a ventilator before things really deteriorate.
1: Yeah, and I final statement from him before we transfer into what dr hick had said is you know if it looks like a duck it quacks like a duck it, you know it, it's a duck and that's how we need to treat this especially you know in these covid patients there there's such a wide variety of presentation and um just how fast they decompensate um and in part of this and part of his job in a an upcoming echo presentation that we will be doing is kind of having those, those palliative discussions and those end of life discussions. And, um and, and it's really hard to have those talks right now. One, because the patients are obviously getting ventilated and then having all this restriction and restricted access. It's hard to have those family members um, available and handy in the, the ICU to really see what's going on. So it is just kind of a, a different world. Um, he's, he kind of said that, well, it's another world.
0: Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, he has the same concern we all have, that at some point uh, we're going to have limited ventilators and excessive number of patients. And uh, this could certainly put physicians in a position that I don't think any of us have ever been in, and uh, hopefully we won't be, and to decide who gets the ventilator and who does not.
1: And I I think he it worked out very well how he transitioned to Dr. Hick, kind of giving us the incident command update, Um, you know, really just... There's not a ton going around right now that's going to really look like COVID. So back to the whole duck, excuse me, duck thing. Um, if it looks like COVID, it's it's going to be COVID. And it can be co-occurring with other things like influenza, but just being extra cautious. But again, watch these uh, oxygen saturations and the COVID patients having this happy hypoxia state, whereas their oxygen's setting low, but they're actually acting fine, at least initially.
0: Yeah, and, and Dr. Hick had a slightly different take on the uh, Venus. Um, blood samples, and in fact, I think that uh, Dr. Baker much more likes the ABGs. Uh, Dr. Hick made it um, made it pretty clear that in the emergency room, sometimes for quickness' sake, it was a an easy thing to do, and a fair amount of information can be gotten from venous samples, especially since the PHs are fairly close, just a, you know a few hundreds off, and so. Uh, he uh, just kind of relayed to us that that's not an unreasonable thing to get as we try and stabilize patients and get an idea of uh, where they're at uh, in their disease.
1: I liked how he was a little bit more specific today when he said when the peak was going to hit, he didn't answer 2020. He said, you know, maybe sometime before August. So I think we're getting it narrowed down So as far as what incident command is thinking. But they also, he was very kind of clear and um I don't know, kind of brought it right to us that rural Minnesota could actually get hit more than the cities. And, you know, everybody should be prepared that, you know, we, we really have to kind of pay attention everywhere and to not think it's just not going to hit rural Minnesota just because we're rural.
0: Yeah. And, and one of the things that the state that they're really working at hard is trying to expand uh, the testing here in Minnesota. And so there's, they're really working at some of the different bigger health systems, such as Hennepin, I believe, and Mayo and some of the other Twin Cities uh uh, systems are going to be having a significant amount of uh, expansion in their testing, which I think is going to help all of us.
1: Yeah, and looking with the antibody testing and serology, um, the faster tests—you know, there—that's a long time coming as far as using it regularly. Um, but they are going to start testing those, especially um, down at Mayo. So to I, be clear, you're saying that the tigers in Minnesota aren't getting tested.
0: No tigers have been okay. tested. I know we have two at our small. A zoo here in Little Falls, and neither of them has been coughing or been tested. Perfect. So one of the other things that uh, Dr. Hick and uh, Dr. Hick had spent some time on is uh, what's going on with our PPEs. Now, where to get them has always been the big issue here lately, and, and he notes that they've been working uh, with different sources, some in China, uh, but uh, it seemed uh, that sometimes what they would get and look at Uh, surprisingly, would not be what they were supposed to be getting, and they were not adequate masks. So there has been some issues with the quality of the masks that they have Uh, that they have uh, received, uh, and that's part of our shortage.
1: I think it's super reassuring, though, that they're looking through all that very closely. And not only are they looking at the PPE, but they're also looking at these other um, types of respiratory support things, whether they're ventilators or more of these high-flow nasal cannula things or BiPAP in the extreme event of we have no vents left. Um, just kind of gave the update on that and how the state is getting an influx of these to start um, spreading throughout the state.
0: Yeah, and, and looking at those as well, some alternative sites to put patients. I know they've looked at Dr. Bell's, uh, Dr. Heather's basement. They're going to maybe <laughs> turn that into a hospital. Well, you it's know. already like one now. There's so many kids there. Uh, but uh, It's an orphanage. It's like an orphanage. <laughs> Uh, and, and really they would prefer that these patients stay in hospital settings. And so that's really the priority right now is to make, make the hospitals able to take as many patients as possible, but there has to be that ability to put patients who are either recovering or have mild disease at other sites.
1: So they can, yeah. And so they can still have that same level of care an appropriate level of care, no matter where in the state, which again, he brought that whole thing back with the rural is that, um, you know, there is this. Migration, if you will, of people to their summer homes already into the cabins in smaller towns, which don't necessarily have that same bandwidth as the Twin Cities would, and then the homeless population. There actually, I've seen some uh, migration of them as well out into more rural areas, um, and so just making sure that um, everyone's kind of ready for this and to to not be complacent.
0: Uh, they spoke a little bit today about it looked a, it looked at least favorable that maybe the curve. Looked like it was flattening in Minnesota for the new cases. Although, again, I think some of that has to um, has to be taken in, uh, with a grain of salt, as again we're not testing a lot of people. Uh, he did make a comment, and th- there was a question as to whether or not he felt the rural areas would have uh, as much of an influx of of cases as they do in the metro. And uh, it was surprising that he felt that in some cases rural might be worse than the metro. Uh, looking at some of the other uh, states, and so I think that behooves all of us in the rural areas. Behooves I did say behooves in the rural areas to be prepared for this and not to take this situation lightly. Uh, and and again, what's going to happen with our stay-at-home uh, in Minnesota right now? Uh, we just have a little while longer, but uh, I think uh, his concern was that it probably needs to be stretched out. So,
1: with that. Um, there were some questions at the very end about um, different ethnicities, and um, I, I could read all these to you, but that'll bore you to death. Just go to the MDH website. Um, but what I'm just looking at here in front of me does look like the percentage of cases um, does correlate pretty well with the percentage of deaths if you look at the different um, races and ethnicities. So, um, But I do want to make note that the, the data that came in, um, from our state yesterday. And again, we're not doing super widespread testing, but it was the biggest jump we have had in Minnesota as far as new positives in the 24 hour period. Um, at 83 new positives since yesterday with 1,069 total cases in Minnesota um, and up to 34 deaths in Minnesota, which is just scary.
0: And I think we'll end this today with a couple notes. Uh, Joe Helley, our friend at Centricare, Care is part of the, uh, part of the team in the twin cities, uh, Let us know that we would have somebody from Minnesota Department of Health on on Thursday ECHO at 1215. uh, And uh, that person will be talking more specifically about the testing and availability, types of tests being used, and so on. And we will also be having a radiologist, and we're going to spend a little time looking at some of the uh, different ways that uh, we can use our radiologic uh, tests to give us a better idea whether somebody has COVID early on. Uh, especially uh, some of the results with CT scanning and chest X-ray appearances. Tell us who that is, Heather.
1: Yeah, so we're going to have, and I am going to brutalize this name, but he is the um, department head of radiology at Hennepin County and Hennepin Healthcare, um, Gopal Punjabi, who I guess has just done all sorts of interesting um, research and studying on COVID in different ways that if you compare even China to how we've looked at our radiology here um, so that should be a really good, a good uh, presentation. And he I, said he's leaving lots of time for questions. So that'll be great.
0: I think it's uh, it's going to be much better than the way you pronounced his name.
1: I hope so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can't wait to hear him say it because I think you murdered it. That's so, why you made me say it. I know. I was like, no way. I'm trying to say that guy's name. It looked tough. <laughs> so thanks again for, uh, for tuning in. And again, Thursday night, we'll have an update on uh, the, the radiology talk and uh, the update from the state and testing. And uh, please feel free to uh, sign up for our, our ECHO, and you can go to the Minnesota Academy of Family Practice website, and all that information is there, how to uh, log in to our ECHO on Zoom. That
1: sounds great. As always, stay connected.
0: Thank you.